This life-changing message comes to you from Church of the Harvest. It's our prayer that this message will inspire your life and bring hope to your future. Welcome, you guys. If it is your first time joining us for a service here at Harvest, uh, we are so glad uh, that you are with us. It's, it's truly an honor and a privilege to, uh, to have you joining us, whether you're here, whether you're on the live stream, whatever it may be, whether you're watching later, we, uh, we certainly thank you for, for joining us. We are in the 14th week of a series that we are calling The Story, and we did. We started it back in, uh, back in February with um, the book of Genesis. We're going to end in November in the book of Revelation, and we're going from cover to cover in the Bible, and our, our whole goal is to understand God's plan. And, you know, it, it's what we're calling God's upper story. And so to understand God's plan, how it plays out through history up until today and on into the future and ultimately, obviously, into eternity. But we know that it's all about God's plan to bring humanity back into relationship with him, him in the way that he originally designed it, the way he originally desired it. And so that's God's plan from the beginning of time. And so we are in chapter 14 of a book called The Story. The story is just, if you haven't been reading along with us, aren't familiar with it, it's just an abridged version of the Bible. And so we are in chapter 14 of the story, and it is entitled A Kingdom Torn in Two. We've come through... We've come through the exodus from Egypt. We've come, they've come into the promised land. They've gone, they've, they've, they've gone through the period of the judges. They've come into the time of the kings. And, um, and David was king. Now Solomon was king. And now we are at chapter 14, and we're talking about a kingdom torn into. What happened after Solomon, uh, after his reign? And so that's what we're going to get into today. But it is called a kingdom torn into. And I, let, let me tell you, this was a little bit of a... Difficult chapter. It's kind of a short chapter. Um, a little bit of a depressing chapter in, in many ways. Kind of kind of tough to follow along with. And, and Israel will go through some more tough times in uh, in the midst of uh, in the midst of the story. Uh, but the kingdom is torn into. We talked about how uh, last week how you know God had said that this was going to happen. But as we talk about a kingdom torn into, uh, I, I just I, I was reading in one of the commentaries of the story this week about. Um, uh, two famous families that you guys have probably heard of. And how many of you would say that you have heard of the two families named the Hatfields and McCoys? Y'all have heard of the Hatfields and McCoys. Now, uh, this is a long time ago. These two families, these two families lived on either side of the Tug Fork River. Actually, it was a Tug Fork tributary, and it was a tributary of the Big Sandy River. And it, what it, this, this river separated West Virginia from Kentucky. And so you had, um, you had on the West Virginia side, you had the Hatfield family lived on the west side of the river, and, um, and then the McCoys lived on the Kentucky side of the river. And the reason we know of these two families from back in the 1800s is because of their great feud. You've heard of family feud, right? Well, this is a true feud. These families feuded uh, many times violently between 1863 and 1901. And it went on like that for a period of about 38 years. And we know that at least 12 people died as uh, a direct result of this feud. And I had to do some reading. Um, I, man, Wikipedia is my friend. And I went and looked up the Hatfields and McCoys. Uh, do you know what it is that actually started the feud? We know of the Hatfields and McCoys. We know of the violence. We know of the feud. But do you know what actually started the feud? I looked it up. The first recorded incidents of violence between the Hatfields and McCoys came in 1863 when Asa Harmon McCoy was returning from fighting in the Civil War and was murdered. 
And William Anderson Hatfield, who was nicknamed Devil Ants Hatfield, he was blamed for it. Even though it was later discovered that he was sick and at home, and there's no way he could have committed this murder, they still took it out on him. Many believe it was actually his Uncle Jim that committed the murder, but nobody actually knew for sure. But it start, sparked the beginning of this feud between these two families. The second recorded incidence of violence between the Hatfields and McCoys uh, took place a few years later, and it was a dispute over the ownership of a hog. And it turned violent. Turned violent. So we're going into chapter 14. And like I said, it's called A Kingdom Torn in Two. And it might be better entitled The Hatfields and McCoys of the Old Testament because that's kind of what this is, looks like in some ways. But in this chapter, the nation of Israel is divided. Guys, it is so odd having people here. I can't decide whether to look at the camera or look at you guys. It, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I've been for two months looking at that camera and I forget that there's anybody else here. Um, so what I want to do to start the chapter, so I don't have to do a whole lot of background, um, if you do have your book, the story, I actually want to just read the, the introduction real quick. It's two chapters, and I want you guys, if you do have the story, you can follow along in those first two chapters real quick. If you don't have it, you can just listen. But here's, here's where we're at. Remember, we just came from Solomon. Uh, Solomon is about to die is where we ended last week. Um, uh, through the prophet Ahijah, God told a rising star in Solomon's administration by the name of Jeroboam that he would be the future king. God would give Jeroboam all but one of the tribes of Israel. After possibly making a preemptive bid for the throne, Jeroboam learned to wait on God's timing. Solomon was not ready to relinquish the throne and tried to kill Jeroboam to keep him from becoming king. Jeroboam fled to Egypt and waited there for an opportunity to make his next move. After Solomon died, his own tribe of Judah automatically accepted his son Rehoboam as the next king. But much of the population, especially from other tribes, had grown to resent Solomon's heavy taxation and conscripted labor for his grand projects. As representatives from all of Israel gathered to make Rehoboam their king, they let their complaints be known. So guys, in this, we see God sends a prophet to this young man who's a part of Solomon's administration. He's not part of the royal family. He's not one of Solomon's sons. He's just part of his administration. He serves in Solomon's administration. A prophet comes to him and tells him he's going to be the next king of Israel. Oh, this sounds kind of weird. He's not a son of the royal line. He's not a son of Solomon or son of David. Uh, but this is what he tells him. It appears that he does something. We don't know exactly what he did, but he, he tries to make some kind of move for the throne because we immediately see after this Solomon is trying to kill him. And he, make, he hightails it to Egypt to, uh, to escape and waits there. But, but right after Solomon dies, his son, Rehoboam, is crowned king. And so what happens is Jeroboam decides uh, for the inauguration, uh, he, he doesn't have any beef. Jeroboam doesn't have any beef with Rehoboam. So he heads back from Egypt to go back to, to be part of this. And Rehoboam joins up with the leaders of the tribes of Israel. And they come to make their complaints known before their, their issues, to bring their issues before the new king of Israel, King Rehoboam. And so Rehoboam, they bring these issues to Rehoboam. And in answering their question, um, in answering the question of Rehoboam, what he does, um, Rehoboam goes to uh, his father's elders, his father's counselors, the older guys who have more experience and more wisdom. They, he goes to them and asks their opinion. 
because here's, if you've read this, the story for this week, you know their complaint is, is primarily about taxation. Solomon was, uh, had kind of been known for heavily taxing the people for his, for his great building projects. And so the people come and they, they're saying, um, are, are you, you going to loosen up just a little bit on, on your father's uh, taxation, his heavy hand on us? So Rehoboam goes to these elders that served his father, the older experienced guys, and he gets their wisdom. And in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7, it says, and this is page 194 in the story, if you're following from that book, Here's their answer. The older elders, here's their answer. It says, if you will be a servant to these people and will serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servant. Now, again, if you read the story this week, you know that Rehoboam does not take this advice. He, uh, he looks right past it, and it says that he instead goes and gets the advice of who it says are the younger guys that he grew up with. And if you know, that's probably not a bad idea, just hearing it from that point. He goes, ignores the advice of the elders, and goes to the younger guys that he grows up with for an opinion. And that's when we jump down to verse 10. In verse 10 it says, The young men who had grown up with him, with Rehoboam, said, These people have said to you, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Now tell them this, My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. How many of you know that that is probably not what the people wanted to hear? That was not the ideal answer. The elders advised against this. But this is exactly what Rehoboam does. This is his answer to the nation of Israel. And so the, the thing is that up until this point, Israel had been a unified people. They, they really all, I mean, they, they had their issues, but they had always been united. They had always stuck together, all, all the way back to Father Abraham. They were one family. They were one tribe. They were one nation. Now things are changing. Now the nation divides, and um, it's, it's over an issue a lot bigger than a squabble over a hog, right? So... Of the 12 tribes of Israel, we know that only Judah, really it was Judah and, and Simeon actually, but um, it was really Judah that chose to stay with Rehoboam and keep him as their king. The rest of the tribes of Israel, what do they do? They decide to make Jeroboam their king. Do we see a problem here? One nation, two kings. It's not going to work out well. We know that... Um, the division of the Hatfields and McCoys was east and west of the river. The division of Israel is north and south. You had the two tribes to the south that stayed with Solomon's son, Rehoboam. The rest of the ten tribes in the north made Jeroboam their king. So the land of the north was made up of the ten tribes. They just simply called it the kingdom of Israel with Jeroboam as their king. The land of the south was made up of the, of the tribes of Judah and Simeon. And, and they called it the, the kingdom of Judah with Rehoboam of their, as their king. And this happens in 930 B.C. We know that the feud between the Hatfields and McCoys lasted 38 years. The feud betwe between Israel and Judah lasted far, far longer. We know that it lasted really all the way through the Old Testament. It lasted for hundreds and hundreds of years. Things were never the same again. And, you know, this is what got me to the place. I was trying to decide, you know, what the Lord wanted to say through the message today. And really what I see in this is this feuding. We see what really we would call division, right? Division, guys, division 
is a terrible thing. Some of you have been at different points in your life, you've been a part of something that caused division. And it is a terrible state to live in. We know that um, if you've been a part of something where there was, there was just divisiveness, such division, it, it'll make you sick. It'll make you angry. It'll make your blood boil. It'll rob you of your joy. We've seen it ruin, it'll ruin weddings and it'll ruin funerals. One of the big ones I thought of, I put down was, it undermines the witness of the church. Guys, this is huge. And we see it in our culture today. We see it in the church today. Where the witness of the church of Jesus Christ on the earth today, the witness is ruined because of division and divisiveness. It's not a place where we're supposed to stay, not a place where we're supposed to go and live. Division destroys hopes and dreams. It crushes people. It crushes children. Man, they're a byproduct in the midst of the whole thing. Jesus said in Luke chapter 11, verse 17, he said, a house divided against itself cannot stand, right? A house divided against itself cannot stand. So the first question you would ask when you read this is, what is a house? Well, in the Bible, a house, we know, can be an individual. Jesus talks a number of times about this house. So he, he talks about a person as being a house. Uh, sometimes a person is called a house or a tent. But that would lead us to believe that you can even be divided Within yourself. How many of you have ever been divided within yourself? A house can be a family. A house can be a church. It can be a city. It can be a business. And we see here that a house can even be a nation. And you guys would agree with me that there are so many outside forces that are trying to tear this down. But we know, biblically, if the members of a house stay unified, then there is nothing that can overcome them. Nothing. But Jesus is saying that once a house and its members turn on itself, it's only a matter of time before that house crumbles. So what do we do about avoiding division in our house, whichever, whatever house that may be, whether it's within ourself or our family or whatever it may be, our church, the Bible talks a lot about this, and, and really, especially the New Testament refers a lot to, uh, it talks a lot about unity within the church. But from this story, um, I'm going to give you four things. Like I said, you can follow along on the YouVersion Bible app. I'm going to give you four things that we can learn when it comes to reading the division of the nation of Israel. So I'm going to give you number one. Number one, we must be careful who we listen to. We have to be careful who we listen to. Now, guys, we know this. We've talked the last couple of weeks as we talked about, um, actually, we started two weeks ago talking about uh, with the question, uh, who is your Nathan? Who is that person who can speak in your life? We all need somebody who can shoot it straight with us, who can look at us and say, you're being ridiculous. You've made this all about yourself, and it's not, and you need to repent. We need somebody like that in our life. We need somebody in our life who can say, you can do more. God has called you to more. And we'll see the potential in us that God put in there and begin to help draw that out. We need these kind of people in our lives. But that's the first point is we got to be careful who it is we listen to. And I touched on this last week. When we face a conflict, we've got to be careful. Now, when it comes to Rehoboam, it doesn't take supernatural insight and and uh, discernment to realize that he was making a bad decision in listening to the young men that he uh, grew up with rather than, than listening to the, uh, the advice of his father's elders. 
The thing is, when we are faced with conflict and we need to know what to do, if the only people that we talk to are our peers or those that we grew up with or those who are smooth talkers and tell us what we want to hear, then the thing is, we are missing out on the experience and the wisdom of those that have gone before us. They probably have insight and wisdom. They may have walked through the exact same situations that we have. They may have insight and wisdom and experience that they can impart unto us to help us to know how to handle these situations. But when it comes to Rehoboam, there's really more to this. Think about this for a second. These, his, the advice that he took and followed was the guys he grew up with. He's now the king. How cool is it for these young guys to think, wow, our best friend is now the king, right? So they're already a little biased. He's not only the king, but he's hired them. He's brought them on. Come on, guys, work for me. And so he's, these young guys are working for him. Now, what is the chance that these young guys that he grew up with are going to give him advice or counsel that he doesn't want to hear? It's probably very slim. Probably very, probably very slim. They want to stay in his good graces. They probably have um, great, there's probably great benefits to being a friend that grew up with the king. They want to hang on to those benefits. So they're going to play it safe. And the cost of them speaking in the truth is probably way too high. So they don't do it. Here's what I've found. Today, most of us, many of us, Many of our friends, people we, that would call themselves our friends, they are automatically inclined to tell us what we want to hear. I believe that that's who most people are surrounded by today. These are people who see themselves as your friends and they want to remain your friends. They want to please you. They don't want to drive a wedge in the relationship. They don't want to do anything to jeopardize that in any way. And so um, many of them are probably afraid to tell you the truth because they're afraid that you may not receive it and that it could damage the relationship. And so they love the idea of the relationship more than they love you. And so they don't speak the truth into you. For them, the cost may be too high. And this is a lower story reality that we've probably all faced. And we have probably all been that friend at some point where we knew we were supposed to speak the truth and we were supposed to say something and we didn't do it in a moment. Proverbs 27.6 says, Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. We all need friends around us that will tell us the truth. As a matter of fact, the book of Proverbs tells us that we should desire to have people in our lives that will tell us the things that are hard for us to hear. And we've probably all been there too, where somebody spoke into us and it felt like a betrayal at first. It felt like a wound. And, uh, but in the end, the Bible says that if we can handle it and receive that truth, that it will save us and it will preserve that unity within our house. So, you know, I would ask you, do you have friends who can shoot it straight in your life? Most of us say, oh, yeah, my friends can shoot it straight to me. Man, really? Do we, do we really have that kind of person in our life? Somebody who has the courage to speak the truth. And, and before I go on to the next point, I want to mention this. We've all had people come to us seeking wisdom and advice and counsel. Let me mention two things real quick. If somebody comes to you and they want some advice, they want some counsel. Maybe, maybe they're having a relationship conflict. Maybe it's with an, another friend or a spouse or a coworker, whatever it may be. Then here's two things I would mention to you. If somebody comes to you and says, hey, can I talk to you for a minute? I'm struggling in my relationship with my spouse. Man, I would ask them permission and say, are, are you willing to hear, really hear what I've got to say to you? Are, are you willing to hear the way that I truly, that I truly see it in this? 
If they seem very uncomfortable with that, then they probably don't really want to hear what you have to say. And it's probably best not to give them advice or counsel because most likely things are not going to end well. And secondly, I would say, don't ever give advice without hearing the other side of the story. And guys, to me, that's a huge one because here's the thing. Even when we personally tell our side of the story in a situation, we are emotionally invested in it. And we generally, even if we don't mean to, even if we try not to, many times we, it's, it's biased in our direction. Isn't it true? The way we say it, the way we talk, the way we communicate it, it's kind of biased. Even when we try not to and don't realize it. If you only hear one side of the story, you can count on it that you are not receiving all the truth, the whole truth. So you can't effectively speak into that situation. So seek to, seek to hear the other side. Ask permission from that, side, can, from that person. Can, can I get the other side of the story? If someone seeking counsel from you is not willing to allow you to hear the other side of the story, again, they're, they're not seeking reconciliation. That's not really what they're wanting in this. They're wanting somebody that will tell them what they want to hear. And you just cut it off. So the first thing I was going to mention is we must be careful who we listen to. Number two. This is what I just mentioned. Division is rarely one-sided. Own your part. Division is rarely one-sided. Own your part. Now, as I said a minute ago, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that Rehoboam had a huge part to play in, uh, this, in, in this whole problem, in that he did not listen to his father's advisors. And at first, it may appear that Rehoboam is the one who was completely wrong in the situation, but, uh, but really, when you get the whole story, you realize that Jeroboam also played a part. And if you look, before Rehoboam is ever even in the story, as we said, Jeroboam is told by a prophet that he will be the king. He kind of takes matters in his own hands. He probably tries to kind of take the throne. Solomon tries to kill him. And, uh, and this attempt fails. He flees to Egypt. Um, but Jeroboam wants this position. He comes back, and we know that after this, this whole confrontation with Rehoboam, the nation of Israel, the tribes up north make Jeroboam the king. Now, after he becomes king of the northern kingdom, he's got a problem. See, he knows that his people are going to continue traveling to Jerusalem to worship and sacrifice. That was the only place, that, that was where the Jews worshiped and sacrificed, was in Jerusalem. Remember, Solomon had just finished the temple. So Jeroboam is now king of the northern kingdom of Israel. Jerusalem's not a part of the northern kingdom. So he's going, what do I do? My people are going to keep traveling down to Jerusalem to worship and to sacrifice. And what happens is he's afraid that people are going to change their loyalties and that they're going to begin to follow Rehoboam instead of him. He sees it as a threat to his throne. So what does he do? He makes two golden calves. And he sets them up in the northern kingdom. He goes so far as to say, these are the gods that brought our ancestors out of Egypt. These are the gods that gave us the promised land. Worship them and sacrifice to them. And that's what they did. This is right from the get-go, guys. Right from the, very, right from the very beginning. And we all know from the story of Moses. We remember when they made a golden calf, how well that whole situation ended up? Yeah, now they've got two of them. And they're giving these calves credit for bringing them out of Egypt and into the promised land. And they're worshiping and sacrificing to them because of the word of King Jeroboam. 1 Kings 12.30 says, and this thing became a sin. And you guys remember when, 
when, um, as, as we just mentioned, remember when, when God sent Nathan to David to confront his sin? Well, God also sends a prophet to, uh, to Jeroboam to confront him for his sin, this sin as well. And look what happens. It says in, in 1 Kings 13, 33, this prophet comes to, to Jeroboam and confronts him with the word of the Lord for his sin. And this is how he responds. In 1 Kings 13, 33, it says, even after this, Jeroboam did not change his evil ways. And we see just like two pages later, this whole thing leads to Jeroboam's downfall. And it's over for him. You guys see another side of the story in the midst of this conflict. As Sean and I have been married for 23 years and 24 next week, 24 next week. Um, after 24 years of marriage and, and 26, 27 years in ministry, I can tell you that I, I don't know if I've ever seen a situation where division was absolutely one-sided. It may not be 50-50, it might be 20-80, but there's almost always, I'm, I, I, I would say always, but I'll put the word almost in there just in case. There's almost always two sides to the story. Division is rarely one-sided. We have to own our part. And here's the, here's the word of wisdom that I'll, I'll leave you at this point with. Um, in the midst of it, we can't control anybody else. The only person we control is ourselves. So if we want to really, if we really want to see healing, if we really want to see the division that we're experiencing come to an end, then we need to humble ourselves and focus on ourselves, not on the other people who are a part of it. So we got to be careful who we listen to. We got to remember that division is rarely one-sided and own our part. Number three, division has a generational effect. It rarely affects just two people. It has a generational effect. And obviously we see this with the Hatfields and McCoys. We see it happening here with Israel. The conflict between Rehoboam and Jeroboam absolutely tears um, through their families, through their lineage for generations and generations. And I'll just show you a couple of scriptures real quick. 1 Kings 14.30 says there was continual warfare between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. 1 Kings 15.6, there was war between Abijah and Jeroboam through Abijah's lifetime. 1 Kings 15.16, there was war between Asa and Basha, Basha, king of Israel, throughout their reigns. These are the next kings of Israel and Judah. The conflict, the feud continues. The division is generational, and it goes on and on. And we know that this feuding lasts really all the way through the Old Testament, all the way up to the period of Jesus, 960 years later. There's still ill feelings in this whole thing. And, and just an example in that, you guys remember um, in Jesus' ministry when he was ministering to uh, the Samaritan woman at the well, right? So Jesus is going, he, he was traveling from Jerusalem to Galilee. And Samaria is kind of right in the middle right there. And so, um, so when you go from Jerusalem to Galilee, you, you, you can go through Samaria to get there. And so this is where Jesus encounters the woman at the well. Now, the Samaritans were a, a, a group of people, kind of, I guess, a remnant of Jews that were still living there uh, from the northern kingdom that was established under Rehoboam. I'm sorry, under Jeroboam. And so the Jews from the south, from Rehoboam's kingdom or Judah, they hated the Samaritans so much that they would go way around Samaria. They'd go way around, way out of their way to head up to the area of Galilee to just to simply avoid all contact with Samaritans. Now, how many of you know Jesus didn't care about that in the slightest? 
So he went right on through Samaria in the midst of this whole thing. And he stops at the well. He talks to the woman. It's a divine appointment. We know that they end up, the village, whole village comes out. They ask him to stay, and he stays there for a few days ministering to them in Samaria at this point. But guys, the point is division can ruin families for generations and generations. And so, you know, in the midst of division, in a moment of anger and hostility, when you decide to take a move that's going to cause serious division, I mean, potentially destroy relationships, we've got to remember in the midst of that that it can ruin things for generations and generations to come. Romans 12, 18 says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And this has to be our mindset as followers of Jesus. And, and let me say this before I leave this point and go to the, down to the last one. Rehoboam and Jeroboam, they didn't spark this whole thing either. It wasn't them. It was Solomon. It was Rehoboam's dad, Solomon. We looked at this last week. In the previous chapter, we know that Solomon was doing great. The kingdom was prospering. It was incredible. They're experiencing a time of peace. And in response to Solomon's request, God grants him this, uh, this, this wisdom. He fills him with this, with this supernatural wisdom and discernment. And Solomon and the kingdom are reaping the benefits of it. But little by little, Solomon stops applying this wisdom to his life and to his rule. And things begin to change. It's, it's kind of like uh, you guys know the illustration of the, the, the frog in the kettle. If, if you throw a frog into a boiling pot of water, it's going to immediately jump out. But if you put it in a lukewarm kettle and slowly turn up the heat, it will cook itself. It'll, it'll be cooked to death. And by the time it realizes what's going on, it won't be able to move and do anything. And so in this, things happen little by little in our lives. And that's what I believe probably happened to Solomon because he really started out great, but we know that things changed and went on. What, what, what did he do? We know that in the midst of it, he, he, had, um, he had all these wives, right? He, he married foreign women to establish political alliances with the surrounding nations, which during that time might have seemed like wisdom. The problem is God had told him not to marry these foreign women that served other gods. We know that he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. These foreign wives worshipped other gods, and Solomon finishes building the temple of God and starts building temples to the, to the gods of these foreign wives and concubines that he had. Not only that, the Bible says that he went so far as to participate in the worship of these other gods. He got off base just a bit. Solomon knew the Ten Commandments. He knew, number one, when it said, you shall have no other gods before me. And so I'm going to read you, uh, as we go, before we go to the next last point, I'm going to read you a, a, a passage that we did not read last week. But here was God's response. Here's God's response to Solomon once all this happened. In 1 Kings chapter 11, back a couple of chapters, chapter 11, verses 9 through 13, it says, The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nonetheless, for the sake of your father, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son, who is a son, Rehoboam. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him. But I will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. What is the one tribe that God gave Rehoboam? Judah. Why did God give Rehoboam Judah? 
We talked about this last week. He had to. He had promised David that the Messiah would come of the tribe of Judah from the line of David. And that's what I talked about last week is God, all, all really God has to do now to bring Jesus is to preserve the line of David, preserve the tribe of Judah at this point, and it has to stay in the family of David. So he divides the kingdom, 10 kingdoms in the north, Judah and, and, and Simeon joined up with Judah in the south, and the son of Solomon, Rehoboam, becomes king of Judah. So if we're threatened with a feud, we've got to remember, be careful who we listen to, Remember that division is rarely one-sided. We've got to own our part. Thirdly, we've got to remember that division has a generational effect. And last thing I want to mention real briefly, getting your focus off God is really the root of division. For the believer, getting your focus off God is the root of division. Now, here's the thing. Division in our relationship with the Lord is really the greatest conflict that we can have. We're born into it. But a family or a church or a nation that stays close to God, what we do when we do that, when we stay close to the Lord, we put a hedge of protection around us that preserves the unity. It doesn't allow division in. So for us that are here as the leaders, as the leadership of Church of the Harvest, the greatest thing that we can do to preserve the unity of this expression of the family of God called Church of the Harvest, the greatest thing we can do is to stay close to the Lord and stay humble before the Lord. The greatest thing that I can do as a husband for my marriage is to stay humble before the Lord and stay close to the Lord. The greatest thing you can do as a parent, it's, it's not just to put food on the table, it's not to go to every one of your kids' games, it's to stay close to the Lord and stay humble before Him because it will preserve the unity, and won't give place to division. As I end, let me tell you what happened with the Hatfields and McCoys. Something I did not know about until this past week. On June 14th, 2003, 2003, you got it? Bo and Ron McCoy partnered with Rio Hatfield to declare an official truce between the families. 140 years after the original fighting broke out. This is in 2003. The document was signed by 60 descendants from both sides of the family and from Governor Paul, uh, and of Governor Paul Patton of Kentucky and Governor Bob Wise of West Virginia. They signed the proclamation declaring June 14th as Hatfield and McCoy Reconciliation Day. Rio Hatfield said that he wanted to show that if these two families could reach an accord, others could as well. Ron McCoy said that up till then, the Hatfields and McCoys had represented violence, feuding, and fighting. But by signing this, hopefully people would realize that that's not the final chapter. What a great ending, huh? Pretty cool. Guys, I've said this for weeks now. Your bad decisions don't have to be the end of your story. The division that you've walked through in your life with others, whatever that may have looked like, whatever it may have been, it doesn't have to be the end of the story. Jesus said a house divided against itself cannot stand. The thing is, the opposite is also true. A house united can stand against anything, anything that may come its way. Let's all stand up. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up as we, as we close out here in just a moment. And let's all, if you're watching at home, just 
just bow your heads with us. We're all going to bow our heads together. And guys, as I said a moment ago, the greatest conflict, the greatest division that you have in your life is not having Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And the thing is, you're born into it. We're born into that sin. So if you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, or if you have not surrendered your life to him, then that conflict is still there and it's still active. There's division between you and God. And let me tell you, that's the first thing in your life that needs to be resolved. And it can happen right now. It can happen, it can happen today. You don't have to wait another moment. We simply surrender our lives to Jesus and we say, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are. That you are God. You're the son of God. You came as a man. You walked among us. You lived a sinful life and you gave your life for me. You took my sin, my guilt, and my shame. You paid my punishment, the judgment that I deserved. You took it. And so I give my life to you. That's, all you, that's, that's what you're doing. You repent of your sins. You say, I turn from my old ways, all, all that junk, the way that I used to live. I, I, I turn away from it. I turn away from my sin. I turn away from my selfishness. And Lord, I choose to follow you all the way, allow you to lead and guide my life. And guys, it changes everything. It, when you come into alignment with God, everything changes. So if that's you, again, with your heads bowed, eyes closed, just you by yourself alone with the Lord, just examine your heart for a minute. Maybe you have prayed that prayer before, and maybe you have accepted Jesus, but you recognize that your heart is not surrendered to him. Guys, take this as a moment to rededicate your life to him, to resolve the conflict and division between you and the Lord so that you can truly embrace him with your whole life. If that's you and you need to do that, I just invite you to, I just invite you to just pray a prayer something like this. Just say, Father God, I thank you for sending Jesus. I was so desperate. I am so desperate for him. I've tried to live my life the best way that I know, but in the midst of it, I'm an utter failure. Jesus, I need you. I need you to be my Lord and Savior. I believe that you are the son of the living God. I believe that you came, that you lived that sinless life, and you laid down your life for me. I accept your sacrifice as my own. And I ask you now, I make you the Lord of my life. I repent of my sin. I turn from the evil ways that, of my past. And I choose to follow you with a clean heart. Thank you for wiping me clean, for cleansing me of all that junk. I choose to follow you all the days of my life. Holy Spirit, lead me and guide me. Fill me that I might be empowered to do everything you've called me to do. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. If that's you and you prayed that prayer, the Bible says that you're a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things become new. You now have the creator of the universe walking with you through this life hand in hand. Yes, you're still going to encounter storms. You're still going to encounter issues. You're still going to see some things that pop up. You're still going to see some of your bad attitudes sometimes that are going to come to the surface. But you've got the Holy Spirit that's there that's going to lead you. He's going to speak to you. He's going to point out things in your heart that he wants you to deal with. Not because, he's a, not because he's some cruel jailer, but because he loves you. And he loves you too much to leave you in the state that you were in when he found you. And he wants you to be able to accomplish everything you were created to do in this life. In this life. But guys, before we close, I just want to come against division. There is a lot of division today. We live in a divisive culture and we live in a divisive time. This, these issues that we're dealing with, not just in our country, but around the world today, this, this pandemic that, we, that we're encountering in the world right now is causing divisiveness and division even within the church of Jesus Christ. 
Guys, we got to come against it. We've got to rebuke that spirit of division. We've got to own our part. We've got to repent. God, and Lord, have mercy. It is an election year in the midst of it all. God, help us. I just pray that the church of Jesus will be a shining beacon of light in the middle of all this, in Jesus' name. But guys, you may find yourself in a position where you know that your attitude has been bad and, and you know that you just need to, you need to repent. Maybe you have held aught against your brother or your sister or a family member. Maybe it's been something that's been going on for years and years. There are people that like the Hatfields and McCoys that have had conflict, conflict for 39 years with their family. I just want all of us watching to come to a place within our hearts where we say, no more division. I refuse to give it a place in my life. I refuse to allow it to control me, to control my emotions and my feelings. Again, just... Just, just bow your heads for just a moment. I just ask Holy Spirit to speak to each one. If there's something that they need to deal with in their life, if there's an attitude that needs to be changed, if there's a new perspective that needs to be seen, if they simply need to repent. God, I thank you that you said that we would be one because you and the Father are one. You are a God of unity. You're the one that said, that said that a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and they become one. You're the one that told us that we are one body, that we are the body of Christ and that we need to keep, make every effort to keep the bonds of unity within this body. God, we embrace unity in Jesus' name. We thank you that you are a God of reconciliation. And we too are a people of reconciliation. We recognize that there is an enemy out there that is constantly trying to devour us. And he uses our minds. And he uses our insecurities. And he even uses what we feel are our rights against us to cause more and more division. We come against those things. We reject it. We rebuke it. We renounce it from our lives in Jesus' name. Lord, we draw close to you in the midst of it all. Lord, we own the part that we've played in division in our lives. We choose to be quick to repent. We also choose to be quick to grant forgiveness to others, Lord. We refuse to walk in division. Lord, I ask that you would restore what has been stolen as we draw closer together. And we choose, God, we choose to walk in humility before you and not give any room to that junk or that mess in our lives. In Jesus' name. If you'd like to get more information about resources from Church of the Harvest, please check out our website at midsouthharvest.org. You may also contact us by phone at 662-890-1573 or toll free at 866-383-8277.